chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. If you're able to stand with me, Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, that's on page 836 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. We're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. We read in Mark 2, 13 to 17. Here's what we see as we read. Remember, we're reading God's word. He went out again behind the, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's God's word. You may be seated. We're working our way here through the Gospel of Mark. We've been at it for five or six weeks. And if you are familiar with the Bible or you grew up hearing some of these stories, uh, maybe some of what we've looked at is, is jog your memory and you remember some of those things. But I'm also aware because I, I talk to a number of people week after week who are new to this thing and who are just getting started in the faith. And, and, uh, or maybe it's been a long, long time and, and there's really not a lot you remember. And so one of the things that I'm mindful of is that when you come to the Gospels, there's a lot of the cultural situation that Jesus is encountering that Mark assumes you know, but you don't know, right? You're not familiar with it. And so there's words and there's kinds of people and there's things that that just don't make much sense. It's like, I I remember the the first time I saw the movie, The Lord of the Rings. Now, I'm going to admit, some of you will hate me for this, I've never read The Lord of the Rings, yeah, gasps. Someone clapped at the last service. I've never read Lord of the Rings. And so when I first saw the very first movie, I was very confused, right? It was like, what's an orc? And the biggest thing, I had to, I, the thing I could not figure out, it took me like almost of the movie was over. Why are the elves tall? Right? I've never seen regular-sized elves, right? And why are they all young and they live forever? And there's all these things that if you're a Tolkien freak, you know all that stuff. And if you're just a regular person like me, you, you watch it or read it and you go, I, I don't get it, right? So in fact, there are actually like commentaries and dictionaries written for Lord of the Rings that have articles and all these different uh, things. And so, so I think the Bible can kind of be like that, right? You, you start hearing about leprosy, and Pharisees, and scribes, and tax collectors, and all these kinds of things. And and everyone that would have originally read Mark's Mark's gospel here would have gone, oh yeah, okay, I got it. And and for us, we go, "Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And so what I want to do on the front end of this message is I want to talk through some of the history, really, of the whole Old Testament leading up to this story um, that actually shapes and informs our understanding of this story. So um, it'll be a little bit review for a number of you, but my guess is for most of you, this will be new. 
or at least to hear kind of the whole story of the Old Testament put together uh, fairly quickly, hopefully should be helpful. So, so here we go, all right? The Bible begins, Genesis 1, with God creating the heavens and the earth. He creates man and woman in his own image, and everything is very good. That all falls apart in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent to distrust God, to disbelieve God. They take the fruit, they eat it, their eyes are open, they're aware of their shame, and the world is plunged into sin and death. Just in chapter 4, one of their sons kills another one of their sons, and by chapter 6, it says that wickedness is rampant through the earth. God saw that the wickedness was great, and he decides to flood it. He decides to judge the whole earth because it's so wicked that he kills everybody, but he saves one family, Noah and Noah's family. And you kind of see that those, that family multiplies. And eventually in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man, Abraham. Abraham was a, a moon worshiper. He was kind of just a, a garden variety, Middle Eastern pagan at that point. And God says, Abraham, you're my guy. I want you to leave your country and your family. I want you to go to the place I show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And he promises to make a nation out of Abraham. Well, the rest of Genesis is Abraham's family multiplying. And by the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's family is in Egypt. They stay there for 400 years. And by the end of that time, they've multiplied to such a point that the leadership in Egypt is afraid. There are all these people. They have enslaved all these people. These eventually would be Israelites. They've, they've enslaved these Jews. And so God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses comes, and Moses' famous line is, let my people go. Right? If you've seen the Prince of Egypt... That old Disney cartoon, it's what that's basically about, is the exodus. And God, in a mighty display of power, it's the most uh, significant event in the whole Old Testament, God rescues the people out of slavery in Egypt, and he decides he's going to send them into a promised land. Now, listen, the promised land, we're told in the book of Joshua, is an 11-day journey from Egypt. So from Egypt to the promised land would take you 11 days. It takes the Israelites 40 years. That's lost. I don't, right? You've been lost before, but I don't, have you ever been that lost, right? Like, like your dad goes out to get groceries and he comes back and he's on Medicare. You're like, dad, what? It's been years, right? You're a grandpa. Congratulations. Like a lot's happened since, right? This shouldn't have taken quite that long. And, and, and so, so it takes them this long time because they grumble and they disbelieve and they disobey God. But finally, 40 years after they're rescued, God sends them into their land. And so they're now a people and they have a constitution with his law and they have a land that is theirs. And they're disobedient continually and they're continually idolatrous and wicked. And the book of Judges, if you ever read that book, is, is really grotesque. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The result of that is they say, we want a king. All the other nations have a king, we want a king. And so God says, well, listen, I'm okay with you having a king, but you don't want one like all the other nations. Because all the other nations' kings are brutal, and they extort you to, they tax you heavily so that they can be rich, and they take your wives, and they take your sons, and they live for their own glory. Are you sure you want that? They say, yes, that's what we want. All right, so that's what you get. And so Israel has a monarchy, has kings for 120 years. First is is Saul. He's a man kind of after the world's heart. Then there's David, a man after God's own heart. And then there's Solomon. Uh, Solomon starts off wise. It says he was the wisest man who ever lived. 
Um, but that seems to sort of go astray because Solomon ends up doing the things that kings weren't supposed to do. He multiplies gold, he taxes people heavily, he multiplies horses and chariots so that he can have a strong army, and probably most significantly, he multiplies wives. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, for the wisest man who ever lived, that's pretty dumb, right? <laughs> like, men, it's all we can handle to have one, right? 700. I, I, I don't know how you do that, right? So really foolish move on his part, and he does that. And sure enough, those wives, it says, lead his heart astray, and he drifts from God, and he goes after the gods of all these other nations because of that. And so when Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. Ten of the tribes, uh, of the 12 tribes, go north. Two of them stay in the south, and uh, it's just a mess from there. This is where you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and it is a disaster. The people are committing spiritual adultery. They don't love God. They're worshiping all these other idols, Baal, Asherah, all these other idols that just grip their hearts. And one king after another sort of leads them more and more and more into sin. The prophets start to rise up and start to say, hey, repent, you got to turn around. And they don't listen. So in 722 BC, Assyria comes in, and they uh, take the northern ten tribes, and they basically uh, disperse them into a number of places where they intermarry with a bunch of people, and those ten tribes basically are lost ethnically. If you've ever heard of the lost tribes of Israel, that's a real thing. That's not just Indiana Jones, that's a real thing, um, because Assyria came in because of Israel's unfaithfulness and displaced them. Then about 100 years later, 605 B.C., Babylon, it's the big world power and big nasty Babylon comes into Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem, and sends the people off into exile in Babylon. God had said, I'll be with you, I'll be your people, I'll give you a land, just follow me, and they don't. They keep going astray after other gods. And so finally, God sends them into this exile. Now, it's really interesting because God cures them of something during the exile, and, and I say cure a little bit loosely. This is never totally cured from our hearts, but it's interesting because before they're sent into exile in Babylon, they are absolutely idolatrous. They're going after all these other gods, and after they get back, they don't seem to have that problem anymore. And it's a little bit like this. I knew a guy who, when he was in high school, his dad caught him chewing Copenhagen tobacco. Right? He, had, he caught him with a big dip in his mouth. And he said, his dad said, hey, listen, you want to dip? Let's dip. Here we go. And he got him a fresh can of Copenhagen, and he made him chew the whole thing without spitting any of it out. So he spit the juice, he, or he swallowed the juice, he swallowed the tobacco, got incredibly sick. He didn't really want Copenhagen after that right? It cured, that, that experience cured him of that. And that's a sense what God does, right? Because they're struggling with all this idolatry, and God says, you want idolatry? I'm going to send you to the most idolatrous place in the world. And he just kind of rubs their nose in it and says, is this really what you want? Let me give you, let me give you a really good taste of what you're going after. And they experience it, and they go, nah, we don't want that. And so in the, Old, in the New Testament, they don't seem to struggle with that same kind of idolatry. There's more idolatry of the heart still, but not the same where they're going after these other gods. So they're in Babylon for 70 years, and then a faithful number of people begin to return, and they begin to come back into the land. 
And they find that Jerusalem is in tatters, right? So they rebuild a wall around it so it can be secure. And they rebuild a temple so that they can begin to worship God again. And they begin to hope for a Messiah. They hope that God will send someone, a king, who will overthrow all these other world powers and lead them to be the people of God. What the end, that's really how the Old Testament ends. And then you have what people call 400 years of silence, or the silent years, before we pick up uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And in that time, a new leader has emerged in the world. Babylon has been displaced, and Rome has arrived. And so when we pick up the pages of the New Testament, there's a whole new ruler in town, and it's the, it's the, the empire of Rome. And so that's who the people have to submit to. They're given a level of freedom here in Israel, but there's still a sense in which they are under Roman rule and they're anticipating a a Messiah, an anointed one, a king who will rescue them. Now listen, this is so key. God's covenant with the people was always calling them to obey. And they were constantly disobeying. And so God sent them into exile. And so they, they basically realize after they come back from exile, if God is ever going to come, if we are ever going to have this king, if we are ever going to truly be the people of God, we have got to get serious about obeying God. None of this drifting off, veering off into other things. We have got to get absolutely serious about the faith. Now, there were a lot of people who weren't very serious about that. They were uh, happy to sort of be aligned with Rome and do that sort of thing. One example of those um, was, was a group of people called the tax collectors. We bump into them here in this story. And the tax, the tax system in Rome basically worked like this. There was a head tax that you paid just for the privilege of being part of Rome. Oh, yippee. Right? This, then there was... Uh, a property tax, basically, and then there was a customs tax. Now, the head tax and the property tax, those were collected other ways, but the custom tax, the way Rome handled this was they basically farmed it out to the highest bidder. And so what would happen is all these people who didn't care about Israel, who just wanted to get rich, often people who had gotten rich through extorting people, through um, kind of uh, loan shark type stuff, charging these huge interest rates, had this kind of money, and what they did was they bid, and the highest bidder got the contract to collect uh, customs taxes in the land. And what they did is they prepaid to the nation of Rome, so they they won their bid, and then they prepaid all that money, and then from there they could charge whatever they wanted and keep it. So these were customs sort of things. So they would hang out around around trade routes where commerce happened. These were the tax collectors. Think about it like organized crime, right? Doesn't that, that's what this sounds like. This is is mafia-style people, right? Loan sharks, extortion, hey, you better pay this or else. That was those kinds of people. And so there's other people who want to be faithful to God, and they're looking around at this, and they're going, God is never going to send this king. He's never going to send this Messiah. He's going to send us off into exile again unless we're faithful. We've got to obey him. We've got to take his word seriously. We've got to quit messing around with all this other stuff. We've got to be faithful to God. In fact, they said, you know what we need to do? We need to sort of begin to separate from the rest of the world because the the rest of the world, the rest of this Roman culture, it's evil, it's wicked. We need to be pure. And not just pure when we go to, to temple. We need to be pure all the time. We need to be so pure that we could eat a meal and be ceremonially clean all the time. 
They said all of life is all for cleanness. They were serious and they were devoted. This was a group of people called the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separate ones. They were taking God's word seriously. They were taking obedience to God seriously. So you get this? You got the bad guys, the tax collectors, organized crime. You got the good guys, the religious people, the Pharisees. Well, we encounter both of those people in this story. And all of that background sheds some light on how significant Jesus' interaction here is. All right, so if you have your Bible, look at chapter 2, verse 13 again. Jesus is still in Capernaum. This is in the north, up by the Sea of Galilee. And it says in verse 13, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. That sounds familiar. That's what we've been reading all along the way here. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. He rose and followed him. Now, now get this, Levi here, uh, when you read the other gospel accounts, you also understand that he goes by the name Matthew. Jesus often would change a person's name. This same Levi, described here, goes on to be the person who writes the gospel according to Matthew. If your name is Matthew, you were named after him, whether you realize it or not. But here he's called Levi. And where does Jesus encounter him? Where is he when this takes place? Did you see it? Sitting at the tax booth. Now, because of where Capernaum was situated, it was right on these major thoroughfares, these major highways, and so it was a prime place to collect this custom tax. You can imagine what it would be like to have to pull in and pay that tax. You can imagine how angry you'd be. You can imagine how upset you'd be. You can imagine how the local people would walk by that and go, you've got to be kidding me. I hate those people. When are you going to stop hurting us? When are you going to stop being unjust? When are you going to stop abusing people? Come on. They hated this. And Jesus walks by and he sees a man in the middle of doing this extortion work. And he says, follow me follow me. Now, we don't know much background here. We don't know what kind of relationship Jesus and Levi had up to this point. We don't know. But Jesus says, just like he said to Peter, just like he said to James, just like he said to Andrew, follow me. And he does. See it? And he rose and followed him. This is a man who'd experienced hatred he, he, he rightly was vilified and hated by everyone except for the people in his crew. And so for someone like a rabbi, someone a holy man, someone who he's maybe heard about, who has the power to cast out demons, who teaches, and people say, no one ever taught like this man. This man teaches with authority. The kind of man who surely he's heard about this with all the buzz that's been happening around Capernaum. The kind of man who can say to a paralytic, stand up and walk, and by the way, your sins are forgiven. Man hears that and says, this Jesus wants me? He picked me? 
Almost every rabbi, I mentioned this a number of weeks ago, almost every rabbi, the, the, the student, the follower, had to, had to go to the rabbi and say, oh, will you please, can I follow you? Not with Jesus. Jesus goes around and he picks his disciples and he says, follow me. Well, when your life has been so filled with sin and so filled with ugliness and so filled with darkness and hatred, and you experience that kind of radical love and forgiveness, what do you do? Well, what Levi did is he threw a party. He rejoiced. He threw a party. And so the next scene in verse 15 is this party. Speaking of Jesus, as he reclined at table in his house, whose house? Levi's house. Levi goes, all right, Jesus, well, let's have a party. Come over to my place. Everyone will be there. Well, who's everyone? Well, we see verse 15. And he reclined at table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This is incredible. Notice what it doesn't say about how Jesus was acting. It doesn't say that Jesus said, hey, Levi, follow me. And then he got there and he was like, oh man, you know what, there's a lot of pretty messed up people here. And he kind of hung around in the background and he kind of like, you know, paced back and forth like, oh gosh, what are people going to think? This is not good. This is not what I was planning. Oh my gosh. Oh my, do you see what she's wearing? Oh no. They're drinking what? Oh no. Doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? And as he reclined, at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. This, the way this worked is most of the tables were low or even on the ground, and people would literally lean in with their feet extended out behind them and their hands and their face nearby one another. And they would lean in and they would eat and they would relax and they would rest. This kind of reclining at a table was significant in this culture. It communicated friendship. It communicated love. It communicated relationship. Relationship with who? Well, it says here, many tax collectors and sinners. And it says in verse, seven, or, yeah, verse 15, did you see? There were many who followed him, many of these tax collectors and sinners. And Mark wants to make sure you get this. He actually says three times, tax collectors and sinners, sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to understand the magnitude of what's going on here. Jesus is befriending, welcoming, accepting the bad guys. This is scandalous. This is dangerous. Tax collectors and sinners. You know, the, the Bible uses this word sinners to describe people who just, everyone who sins. That's one way it's described. But in, in this way, it's described as kind of a faction or a group of people. And think about this. Who are the kind of people that hang around organized crime? Prostitutes, hitmen, addicts, dealers, arms dealers, all this stuff, right? That's that's sinners. That's who's being talked about. Jesus is hanging and befriending and welcoming the worst people in Israel. Verse 16, there's another group watching. And the scribes of the Pharisees 
when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now remember the Pharisees, they're the good guys. They're our kind of people, right? We are a church that believes that that the Bible is the Word of God, and you should take God seriously, and you should obey the Lord. We believe that we should not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. These are our kind of people. They're the good guys. They're looking at it, and they're going, what? They ask the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And there might be just a smidge little part of this that's curious, like, what is this? This is not what I thought. That, that might be a part of it, but when you read the rest of the Gospels and you see the interactions that Jesus had with these men, what you see is that this question was probably asked with a sneer. <sighs> Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? How could he do that? It's disgusting. I thought this guy was good. That's, they're terrible. They're the worst. How could he be with them, right? There's a judgment that goes on. And listen, when you build your life around an identity that says, I'm one of the good guys, I do the right thing. I show up on time, I work hard, I pay my dues. When that is your mentality and that is your attitude and that's what gives you a sense of meaning and worth and this is who I am, when you have that attitude, you have to look down your nose at people that aren't like that. You have to, right? And so you begin to sneer and you begin to judge and you begin to go, clean up your life. Jesus, how could you be with these people? And this is who Jesus reclines with. And how does Jesus respond when he hears it? Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, it's not healthy people, or really more likely people who think they're healthy. If you think you're healthy, you don't go to the doctor. But when you realize you're sick, you go. And Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. There's a lot of introduction and a lot of working through that story to come to this bottom line. Here's the bottom line of the story. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for sinners. Some of you are here thinking, why am I here? I should never set foot in a church. This place is going to collapse if if God knows what I've done. If these people knew what I've done, I'm the least religious person. I'm the least deserving person. There is no way I should be here. Listen, Jesus came for you. If you realize I'm sinful, I'm wicked, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I'm guilty, I'm dirty, I'm defiled. Listen, Jesus came for you. This is scandalous grace. This is what makes Jesus so scandalous. I love this quote by James Edwards. He's a commentator 
who has a great commentary on Mark. Here's what he says. The scandal of this story is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. He doesn't say, hey, clean up your act and then I'll hang out with you. That's not what he does. He continues, rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. If they forsake their evil and amend their lives as they do so, or they do so as did Zacchaeus, not in order to gain Jesus' favor, but because Jesus has loved them as sinners. This isn't the only place that, that Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. There's another one. He references it there, Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. And because of Jesus' love and grace and acceptance to this man, he changes. He says, I'm going to give away half my stuff, and if I've ever bilked anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay it back fourfold. I'm going to make it right. But listen, Jesus doesn't hear him say all that and then say, okay, now you can come with me. Instead, he shows him grace and mercy and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And as a result of that grace, Zacchaeus changes. Do you get that's what grace is? Some of you have been here thinking, I got to get cleaner. I got to do better. I got to try harder. And then maybe God will accept me. No. Because Jesus came for sinners. He says so. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he uses this example of a physician, of a doctor. That got me reflecting a little bit on, on a doctor. When do you go to a doctor? Why do you go to the doctor? When you go to the doctor, and right, there's, I'm sure, in here, different views about health care and you know, medicine and, you know, all that stuff. But whenever you go to whoever you would go to, why would you go? I thought of four reasons. First is you can't heal yourself. Can't heal yourself. You've tried the natural remedies. You've tried the -the over-the-counter medicine. You've done the stretches. You've done the strengthening. You've done the exercise. You've tried to reform your diet. You've tried to exercise more. You've tried to cut back on sodium. You've tried to do all the things that you can do, and it's not getting better. You've tried it, and you realize, I better go to the doctor. There's different kinds of people. Some people want to go to the doctor right away, and some people want to like be on death's door before they finally go. But when you go, you go because you realize, I can't heal myself. Listen, Jesus says, I'm a doctor, and you can't heal yourself. Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've tried by taking the Bible seriously or being very committed to obedience or doing all the things that the Pharisees did. Maybe you've gone down that path, and you now realize, I can't reform. I can't get better. I can't heal myself. I try to be more disciplined. I try to be more diligent. I try to keep better time management and self-control. Okay, all right. It's March 22nd. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Still got them? Right, you started out, I'm going to do P90X, and then you, had, you did P27X. <laughs> that's how all of us are. Listen, that's how all of us are. We can't heal ourselves. So we go to Jesus. Another reason you go to the doctor is it's just been too long. It's been too long. You know, people go, I haven't, I haven't been to the doctor. It's been a long time. I need to just kind of check out and see if everything's okay. It's just been a long. Or I, you know what? I, I've, I've been kind of dealing with this, and 
and it's been hurting, and it's been giving me headaches, and it's been hurting my back, and it's been all this, and it's just, I thought it was going to get better, and I gave it time, and it, it's just been too long. I'm going to go to the doctor. Listen, it's been too long. It's been too long that you've suffered from your selfishness and the selfishness of others. It's been too long that you've thought, well, it'll just, my, my life will get better over time if I just give it a little more time and a little more. No, 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 no. It's been too long. You're not getting better. Your selfishness, your pride, it's not going away. So come to Jesus. He came so that you would come to him. He came for sinners. Here's a third reason you go to the doctor. You don't need agreement, you need intervention. You need intervention, right? That, it's nice when you go to the doctor and they say, yep, sure enough. But imagine you go to the doctor and you go, oh, my stomach, it just, I have all this pain and I'm vomiting all the time and I'm always sick. And it's like, and imagine the doctor says, yep, you sure are. Does that make you feel better? No, what you want is you want the doctor to go, okay, here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you this treatment. I'm going to give you this medication. I'm going to intervene. And, and listen, Jesus came not just to acknowledge that sin is your problem, but to fix it. Right? Every other religion, the Pharisees, the, the law, when people use it this way, comes just to tell you, yeah, you really are bad. I mean, that's the whole point of the Pharisees. Yeah, you, you guys stink. You're, you're the worst. And Jesus says, I didn't come just to tell you you're bad. I came to do something about it. Well, what did he come to do about it? He came not just to tell you you're a sinner, but to fix your sin. See, this isn't the only place in the Scriptures where Jesus identifies himself with sinners. We saw it already at the beginning of the story when Jesus was baptized. And we said Jesus was sinless. He didn't need to be baptized. Why did he do it? To identify with sinners. And at the end of this story, what we're going to see is that Jesus identifies with sinners as he hangs in the cross in their place. On the cross, the scripture says that God treated him like the bad guys. God made him to be sin. So that in him, we might get his righteousness. See, we think all the time, well, there's good guys and there's bad guys. I'm going I'm to be one of the good guys. And, and often, even Christians are thinking, well, God's just really calling me to be one of the good guys. No, 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 no. Listen, there are not good guys and bad guys. There are bad guys and Jesus. That's it. And Jesus says, I am going to not just recline and accept and love and hang out with you. I am going to go to the cross for you. I will become a bad guy so that you can have everything who I am. He came to intervene. That's why we should come to him. Another last reason you go to a doctor is because you trust the doctor knows what they're doing and can give you what you need. Jesus can give you what you need. You can trust him. He proves this, right? We saw it just in this last story. Your sins are forgiven, Jesus said last week to the paralytic. Everyone goes, well, gosh, okay. I mean, listen, I, I could just walk up to you and go, hey, Dave, your sins are forgiven. You know, oh, 
That's easy to say. How do I see that? How do I know that? Prove it. Jesus knows that, which is why he says, hey, your sins are forgiven, and so that everyone knows that your sins are forgiven, stand up and walk. Jesus is capable. Jesus is able. Jesus can do what we most desperately need done. Now listen, here's the thing. This is why the people who are most likely to become Christians, the good guys, the good people, the moral people, the righteous people, this is why those people who are most likely, it seems like to us, to come to faith in Christ are actually the least likely once they really understand what it is. Listen, as long as religion is be good, try hard, there's a place for those people. But when Christianity comes in and says, the only way you get this relationship is by admitting that you are awful and sinful and wicked and adulterous and evil. And only if you're willing to admit that can Jesus help you. Or my last question to Linda up here earlier today was, what can you do if someone digs their heels in and they just go, I, I don't want help? What? Nothing. You can't do anything. Listen, if you're not willing to admit you're a sinner, Jesus can't help you. But if you are willing, here's the good news. If you're willing to admit that you're a sinner, then he came for you. And you can trust him. And you can, you can follow him just like this awful, terrible Wicked man Levi did. Have your sins forgiven. Have your darkness cleansed. That's what God can do for you. Do you need a doctor? Yeah. Do you know you need a doctor? I hope so. If you do, rejoice. Because Jesus came for sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and kindness to us. God, I pray that you would allow us to see ourselves the way you do. And God, that as we see the reality and the depth and the seriousness of our sin, that it would not lead us to despair, but that it would lead us to come to you in faith, to realize that you are who we need, that you alone can fix this problem of sin. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.